Well, the ushers are going to collect our offering now <laughs> unto the Lord, which, uh, depending on this message, it's good that I'm doing it before I preach versus after I preach. So we thank the Lord for the opportunity to hold his resources this past week and to treasure them in places of the kingdom that he's desired, and part of that is happening right now, just uh, giving giving towards the kingdom work that God has given to us to do. Kay and I have spent three days this past week up in Washington, D.C. We were at a pastor's congressional briefing uh, hosted by uh, a, a Christian organization out of Texas. And uh, we were there with about 140 other people who are pastors and spouses from around the country and hearing from uh, some of our congressmen and women and senators. There was about... 10 or so that presented uh, before us uh, what was going on in their lives uh, on the Hill. I've never participated in anything like that. I've been in a congressman's office before, but honestly it was as a kid to get his signature more than it was for anything else. So to be able to sit in, in front of these people of Congress uh, was an eye-opening experience. Uh, we determined a number of years ago that we would turn off cable TV. The 24-hour news cycle, 24 news cycle was just undisturbing to us and was taking away the, the peace and the joy of Christ. You know, Satan robs in many, many ways, and that was one way he was doing that in us. And so we just determined not to, to do that any longer. So I haven't really been engaged in a whole lot of the activities, but I, I read and I know what's going on, especially as it faces the church uh, here locally and around the world. But to sit in Congress, most of my, my prayers have been towards them about, Lord, would you please straighten out this mess? Uh, I don't know about you, but that's, that's sort of been my, my prayer. Uh, Lord, what a, what a muck this is. <laughs> can, you, can you help us? Now, sitting before these 10, they were 10 who came throughout the day and Every one of them were great men and women of faith, easily declared not just their faith in Jesus Christ, but their daily movement in the kingdom of God and what they believe God has called them to do. And I came away with a fresh perspective and a little way that Kay and I would change how we're praying for our leaders that God has placed over us. My prayer now is, Lord, not only would you fix the mess, but Lord, you have placed what I know, at least 10 people who are given to you and your spirit, use them as light and salt. Bring about a transformation in our country through that remnant of people. And I would encourage you to pray with me alongside of that prayer, that God would use those and others who are of great faith, that he would use them in mighty ways to lead our nation back to a great awakening of who Jesus Christ is and what God demands of a country with mercy and justice and love. Uh, we flew back in on Thursday evening. Uh, Kay's dad has not been well. He's been sick for a, a number of months, and uh, she's been given a great bit of care for him. We've had him locally for about a month uh, in a rehab center here, but Honestly, his health has declined throughout that period to the point that Friday morning uh, he was placed in the hospital and we didn't anticipate him to live the day. And he actually went to be with Jesus yesterday morning about 5 a.m. Uh, we're going to have his funeral tomorrow. I'll be able to preach my daddy-in-law's funeral. That's always a, an honor to be able to do things like that. 
and we'll bury him at his hometown in Sullivan, Alabama, which is on the western side of Alabama tomorrow afternoon. So thank you for your prayers and your encouragement. You have been overwhelming. Two things are certain. Number one, the gospel is so helpful in moments like this that we know the resurrection is true and it is right and it is going to happen. Uh, we didn't say uh, goodbye to her, her dad. We said, we'll see you again soon. Uh, so we, we love the gospel for that kind of hope. Secondly, the church of Jesus Christ is beautifully in love with one another. And that is evident when you're going through a crisis. And uh, whether it's one or two phone calls here or there, or in our case, hundreds of texts and messages and calls that have been coming in, uh, we're overwhelmed with God's goodness and grace. And just thank you. Uh, everybody says the same thing that I say. What can we do? Nothing. Just pray. Just pray and, and give encouragement. The, the time that Kay and her sister are going to need you the most are days ahead. Uh, right now, there's just such confusion around that uh, it sort of distracts. But you, if you've been through that, you know that there are uh, days and nights where that grief will wash over. That'll be the time that the Spirit will bring her to your memory. And as he does, just pray for her in those moments. And we thank you. There's another conversation that's going on in our community that I want to speak to. I'm somewhat timid to do so, to be honest, but I believe that the Spirit of God has prompted me to do so. Uh, a local evangelist, as you know from the news, uh, has been highlighted recently for sexual abuse allegations. And I, I want to just bring that up from the platform today because you're already having the conversations and I want to bring the conversation to a biblical perspective. Not that you're not doing that, but I, I believe it's important that we do that. Um, I know you're dismayed and troubled by the accusations, and you should be, as I should be. There should not be a brother in Christ that acts in the way uh, that that man has been accused of acting. Uh, we ought to be taken aback. And if you're feeling that, that's because uh, the Holy Spirit demands holiness of each of us. God said, be holy as I am holy. So he demands that of us, and he gives us the means by which we can walk in holiness by his Holy Spirit. So uh, I, I, I recognize our trouble with this. I would just ask us to temper our discussions and bring them not to a point of gossip, but bring them to a point of being biblically centric. Uh, ask the things that, that God is wanting us to ask. If you're feeling the heaviness of this, it's good and it's right because we ought to be heartbroken over this. And there's several reasons. I'm, I'm going to list a few of those, uh, not in any given order. Uh, several reasons for our heartbrokenness. Number one, reproach has been brought on the name of Jesus Christ. And that causes us to be heavy-hearted. Righteousness. Now, you look at me in the eyes, please. I am not a man without sin. I do not claim to be. But I'm a man called to holiness. And I do claim that call. So I'm heartbroken that the name of Jesus is being talked about in the way that he is. As a 
an ambassador of his, it's my duty to represent him well. As an ambassador of Jesus, it's your duty to represent him well. So his name is being, reproach is brought upon his name. Many a naysayer, the enemy is using this against them. And he is bringing stronger delusion to them. So we're heartbroken over that. We're heartbroken that the church of Jesus Christ has been tarnished. That the people that God has made to be holy by the blood of his own son, that this body is tarnished. We're saddened and we're grieved by that. And we are certainly saddened and our heart is heavy for those who have been abused. I recognize that there are some in this room who have suffered from sexual abuse, and it's an abuse like no other. In fact, the Bible says that sexual sin is a sin like no other. It permeates to your spirit. And some of you have endured that, and this may have brought up some of those old wounds I just want to speak to you for a moment. The enemy so much wants you to be identified with the abuse that was perpetrated in your life. But that is not who you are. You are being made new in Jesus Christ. It's as if your life is set a sail and the wind in the Bible, original language, pneuma. The pneuma is the Holy Spirit, and he is breathing into the cells of your life so that you might go in the way that God has charted your life to go. Don't be redirected by someone else's sin against you. Let the Spirit blow freshly in your life. I'll mention one more thing. You must demand holiness from every person who teaches the gospel. That is your requirement, that you demand holiness. It's demanded when you call someone to the ministry, when you lay your hands on them, you must thereby demand that they represent Christ with holiness and righteousness. Now, I've already told you I am not a man without sin, but if you find me to be in sin, if you hear words that are not in correlation with the scripture, if you hear uh, actions of mine that do not coincide with Jesus Christ, I ask you to come to me and rebuke me and correct me on that. It is my deepest desire that I would never bring reproach upon the name of Jesus, that I would never bring reproach upon his church, and that I would never embarrass you. So you demand that of me. I'm demanding it of our staff. I'm requiring it of them, and you should require it of me. Because what is at risk is too great. So let our thoughts and let our conversations be guided in that kind of direction. That God, we're sorry that this sin and the sin like ours affects the name of Jesus and your church and other people. Help us to be redirected. All right, now let's turn in our Bibles to the 17th chapter of Matthew. I want to focus 
on the first 13 verses here of Matthew 17. It's really an amazing section of Scripture. Uh, it, it breaks apart pretty easily in two sections. I'm going to focus most on the first of the two, um, and I'd like for you to follow along. Now, I'm sort of just going to speak from my heart today. I don't have handout notes for you, and I don't have things on the screen for you. For some of you who are, who are really dependent upon that, you're starting to shake as I speak. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Uh, I'll be okay, you'll be okay, and next Sunday we'll get back into our regular, regular rhythm of things. So just with your Bibles open, or maybe if you read the Bible from your smartphone or tablet, that's fine. Uh, I love to do it where I can hear pages turning and I can have a pencil to a, an edge of a, a paper so that I can write down some things. Let's read this text together. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. This is one of my favorite parts. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And they lifted up their eyes, and they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say, First, Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, and so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. I have used this illustration so many times, some of you are going to tune out, but hang on. My glasses are a multifocal glass on both sides. I can put them on and I can see the media people from the top portion of my glasses and I can see you folks that might be prone to sleep right here in the middle portion of my glasses. <laughs> and I can see the scripture that I'm reading at the bottom portion, the reading portion of my glasses. And I can just kind of move my sight. My brain sort of calculates that now. It took it a while. Uh, when I first put them on, I remember walking around the grass, and I was like high-stepping because I couldn't figure out exactly where the ground was. But I'm used to all that now. When Jesus speaks, he often speaks as I look through my glasses. And in this case, it's Elijah he's talking about. And as he's speaking about Elijah, first he speaks on the upper part saying, Oh, Elijah is coming. I'll just remind you before the glorious coming of our Lord, and he is walking the earth, Elijah and Moses, come. 
And Elijah begins to prepare, proclaiming the gospel of Christ to, to those who are left on earth. The church has already been taken up to heaven, and so there's witnesses that are needed. So Elijah and Moses come, and they make the declaration about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and 144,000 Hebrew people are going to suddenly recognize the blinders are gone, that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, and they will give themselves to him, and they will become the spokespersons of the gospel so that the gospel fans all over the world, the Bible says in such massive numbers, the people will be coming to faith that it would be like the stars of the sky. Untold numbers. But Jesus speaks in this case, not just in the upper portion about what's to come about Elijah. He says that Elijah has come. He's speaking of John the Baptist who came in the spirit of Elijah. Not Elijah's spirit, but in the, in the way that Elijah would come, making straight the way of the Lord. Then he begins to help them to understand some things about himself, and he does so through this transfiguration. It's an interesting thing that God is doing in the midst of them. If you remember, it's six days ago that Jesus had asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter stepped forward with a bold proclamation and he summarized the gospel from the Old Testament and the experience of Jesus here on earth with him and he summarizes it in one perfect sentence given to him by God, Jesus says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. So you are God in the flesh. You are the one that all the words of the prophets and the and the law was pointing towards, you are that chosen one, the anointed one of God. You are God as a son in the flesh, life. And he was right. And Jesus took Peter along with James and John, the brothers, just a little bit further north to what most people think is Mount Hermon. And there they're in a very desolate place without the distractions of people. And the Bible says that Jesus is transfigured. The word for us is metamorph metamorphosis. He's completely changed in front of them. Now, Peter, James, and John are experiencing this, and you and I might wonder, what is God doing in the midst of all of this change? I'll tell you what he's doing. He is giving a visual way of the holiness of Jesus. When we think about who Jesus is, we often think about him with descriptors. He is innocent. He is righteous. He is holy. That's hard to put your eyes on, isn't it? It's hard to grab hold of that. How, how do you know what holiness is? Well, yes, we know him in the person of Christ. We know it in the person of Christ. But there's more here. What Jesus is doing is he is giving a visual of what glory is, and it is absolutely brilliant. The whitest light ever known is demonstrated before them. It's the innocence, it's the holiness, it's the righteousness of Jesus that is suddenly evident in a manifest physical way. They are seeing that in him. Now, some might say, well, this is an amazing thing, pointing out the deity of God. Well, yes, it certainly points to the deity of God, but that's not the purpose, I don't think. 
I think it's framed up well by G. Gordon Campbell, who explains that the transfiguration, this point in history when Jesus as a man is made manifest in his glory, is an essential part of us understanding who he is and what he is going to accomplish with the cross and his death and his resurrection. What he's going to accomplish in us. Jesus did not change form in order that this would be a splendid display of his deity. In fact, what Jesus was doing was climbing the mountain to reveal what the perfection of mankind is meant to be like. This is the, the pinnacle, the crowning glory of what mankind should be. Morgan explains that the, the process of mankind's life includes three important aspects, and it's clearly evident in the life of Jesus as a man. First is innocence, the second thing is holiness, and the third is glory. We see this in the life of Christ. He's born first with innocence. Now, it's unlike us. You were not born innocently. You might look at a baby and you might say, oh, how beautiful. Well, after the first two or three days, you might say, how beautiful, that baby, right? And, and you might say, oh, just so innocent. No, 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 no. That little one is not innocent. It just has not formed well enough to communicate its sinfulness yet. Give it a few days, and when it is irritated by you, he or she will let you know that life is all about him or her. And when you take something from that little one, it will bite, pinch, pull, whatever it has to do to represent the sinful nature that it has. Innocence is not of any of us. It's what theologians call the Adamic sin. It goes all the way back to Adam. Adam sinned, and his sons received his sin, and all the way through their flesh, it goes throughout history. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus was not conceived by a man. Jesus did not have a father who conceived him. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And because the seed of man did not bring about the conception of Jesus Christ, but God himself brought about the conception of Jesus Christ, he was born with innocence. Not only did he not sin, he could not sin. Now, it goes further than innocence. Jesus lived his life with holiness. So born with innocence, but holiness is a choice from there on out. In fact, holiness is Jesus staring at the face of temptation and not flinching. Holiness is being tempted and never leaning towards it, much less doing it. And that's Jesus, who is altogether innocent and altogether holy. He is what mankind was meant to be. It's why Hebrews calls him the second Adam. That's exactly what God intended for all of mankind. That's the way he created the first Adam to be, with innocence and to remain holy. But he didn't remain holy. Jesus is the second Adam. And not only was he born with innocence, he remained innocent with holiness. And now he's ascended this mountain there with his three disciples and they see 
the representation visually of what innocence and holiness would look like. And it's absolutely splendid. There's no words to describe it. How do you describe the essence of radiant holiness? How do you describe that? Peter and James and John had a hard time even being there in the midst of it, much less to try to describe it. Oh, don't worry. One day you'll put your own words to it, you who have faith in Christ Jesus and the Father who sent the Son to redeem you and reclaim you back to himself. You can put your own words to it because you'll see it yourself. And it won't just be that you'll see it, you'll experience it yourself. Or there will be a day that you and I will die unless the Lord returns for us beforehand. But when we die and our body comes forth, in that day He will give us a new body and we will be like Him, glorious. And you can experience it with Christ and you can experience it of Christ one day. I long for that day. I'm not afraid of death. The process, not a big fan. But I'm not afraid to die. Because on that day, God's holiness and God's innocence will be given. I long for that day. I long for a day that the inner dialogue will not be in conflict with the holy word of God. I long for the day that what comes out my mouth is what came from the mouth of God. I long for that. So Peter, James, and John, they get sort of a taste of this, what, it, what it's like to experience God's glory, His holiness revealed. And it's even more than just experiencing that in the moment. He, he's demonstrating that He alone is the one who will accomplish their restoration, who will bring about their holiness, who will bring about their glory, that only He is capable of doing that. And the transfiguration is the point of that. You know, the transfiguration is the point in history where Jesus is turning towards Calvary's cross. He's turning to the point where he will be suspended between the sinfulness of earth and the holiness of heaven. And he will become the mediator between God and man, making it so that mankind who is filled with sin can be filled with righteousness and be into a relationship with God in heaven. He is bridging that gap for us. This moment of transfiguration is moving in that direction. You and I don't know that kind of glory because of our sin, but oh, one day, one day in heaven we will. But this isn't just about a day in the future. This is about today. Peter, James, and John were going to be changed on that day. Oh, ultimately, after the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the filling of their lives by the Holy Spirit, no doubt. But they were never the same after the transfiguration. They understood a little bit more. They're having a hard time grabbing hold of it. Peter especially, because we know what he says. It doesn't quite match up. But later, he gets it so right, he writes an entire epistle about it. About what it's like to view holiness and what it's like to be holy and what God is doing to make us sanctified, to make us holy. If you're interested in that, you ought to read the epistles this afternoon. Dive into them and see what Peter says in that great letter to the church.
On the cross, the blood of Jesus was shed to make provision so that every sin and every crime and every offense ever committed against God could be dealt with. On the cross, the one who was sinless became sin so that we might have God's righteousness in him, so that we might be hidden with Christ in God. Listen to the promises of Colossians 3. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I echo the words of the Apostle Paul who says in 2 Thessalonians, To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obtaining glory is not just a future event one day. Obtaining glory is for today as well. That God would make himself known in his Holy Spirit dwelling within you with glory. Unique distinction. That's hard to see. It's as if the Bible says we have a veil over our eyes. But you know what the Holy Spirit of God is doing? The Bible says it's as if the Holy Spirit is just removing portions of that veil so that every day we see a little bit more clearly God's glory. Oh, that's God's longing for you. That's His purpose for you. That's the way of the Holy Spirit for you and me. That today we would understand and bask in the glory of God and His holiness and His holy life and call more than we did yesterday. And on Monday, we'll look back to Sunday and say, Oh God, I've got a long way to go, but I'm further along in this way. I see you more clearly now, pressing into you more fully now. I know you, Lord, and your glory more. That's what the Spirit of God is doing. Are you pressing where He's pressing? If you're not, you'll default to this world. And this world will detour you away from what God is doing. Press to the things of God, to his glory. As certain as Jesus was gloriously transformed before Peter, James, and John, he has made provision for you and me to be transformed, to be in a process of metamorphosis unto glory today. In fact, every moment of every day, the Holy Spirit of Christ is working to bring about His glorious image in us. So embrace that. But let me just mention this to you, that that God's glory is never earned. It's always given in the new covenant that God has established with us through Jesus Christ. It's given to us. So when Jesus was transfigured, we find there with Him, as described by Matthew Moses and Elijah. Now think with me for a moment. Why Moses and Elijah? Why couldn't it be Isaiah? Why can't it be Abraham or Jacob? Why not Obadiah? (laughs) What's up with Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses is a grand representative of the law of God. In fact, God gave the law to Moses When we refer to the law, we often will say the law of Moses because God gave it to him. So there Moses is speaking with Jesus. I've got no doubts what they were talking about. First of all, in a worshipful way, Moses must be saying, God gave the law and you perfectly obeyed every bit of it. Not even Moses could say that about himself or anybody else. What about Elijah? Elijah is the representative of the prophets. And Elijah must be worshipfully saying to Jesus as he's about to move towards Jerusalem, 
God gave hundreds of prophecies about you, and you are fulfilling every one of them. It's like you have a priestly office and a prophetic office standing before you, and they are, in a, in a symbolic way, transferring that to Jesus, and he is the only and the perfect one to be able to hold both offices and do it without a blemish. But it's more than that. For us, Moses being there gives us great encouragement. Remember what happened to Moses. Uh, he did not make it into the promised land because of some disobedience in his life to God. And God took him up on Mount Nebo. I've been across the Dead Sea from Mount Nebo. I was looking in a distance at that. In fact, I did a markup on a picture on my iPhone. Nebo right there. Now, I saw the place where God buried the body of Moses. God did it himself. He didn't rely on man to do that. God had it done. You know why? Because he knows the rebellious, idolatrous nature of mankind. He knew that if man could do it and find the bones of Moses, they'd dig those bones up and they'd put them in some fancy gold-covered box and they would worship the bones of Moses. I've seen it in other places in the world. Moses represents for us people of faith in God who have died before us. It's obviously very fresh on our minds these days. Moses represents the people of faith who have died, been buried, that they are with Jesus. Some of you still grieve, and we will for the rest of our days. Loved ones who are not physically with us we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We have great hope in the gospel. We know that we will see them again. The resurrection is true. They, we, will, we will be together again. But Moses helps us to know that those people are not dead. They are actually more alive than we're alive. That they're with Christ. So if you're having these waves of grief that wash over you, and it's about people who have gone before you and they are in Christ, take some some comfort that Moses and Jesus are in discussion and your loved one and Jesus. Oh, wow, the discussions they're having. Elijah reminds us, too, of people who never tasted death. There's only a couple of them in the Bible. Can you name the other one? This is uh, Jeopardy. You get to call out. <laughs> Enoch, there you go. So Elijah is, is picked up. God Ubered him right out of this world and took him on a flaming char a chariot up to the heavens, and, and there he was. And oh, my friends, if the Lord doesn't tarry and you and I die first, we will be taken up in similar fashion. And we will together meet those who have gone before us in the air. We take great comfort on either side of that. Your faith is in God. But Moses and Elijah are having this discussion Peter obviously misunderstands what's happening. He's looking, he's seeing, but he's misinterpreting. He's not getting it right. So he sort of calls out, it's good for us to be here. Let me make a brush tent. I'll make one for you, Jesus, one for you, Moses, and one for you, Elijah. Now, the reason why that's not going to go is because it's not as if three equals are there. You've got two men and a God there. Why are you going to make them the same thing? And, 
And really, Peter, God is not wanting to reside there in a tent on Mount Nebo. God wants to reside in your heart. The Lord is not going to stay there on Mount Nebo. He's going down into the valley where there's an, an amazing amount of need that's there. And he's moving towards Jerusalem where there is a cross awaiting him, where the sins of the world will be placed on him, where he will make the heart a place, a holy temple where the Spirit of God can reside in each of us. Peter, it's way better than just a brush tent. God wants to do the unimaginable. God wants to make your body his dwelling place. And he missed it. We have a tendency to do that when we only look. There's a couple of words in this narrative that stand out to me. It's the part where he's, he's talking about, and there was Moses and Elijah talking to him. There's two words before Matthew gives us that detail, and it's just a conjunction and this word, behold. Will you do me a favor? When you're in your Bible, the one that you mark with a pencil, whenever you see the word behold, will you just circle it from here on out? Just circle it. Because God doesn't want us to glance at those things. God doesn't want us just to look at them. He wants us to behold them. Now, when Matthew recounts these descriptions that have been given to him by uh, Peter, James, and John and the Holy Spirit, Matthew says, behold. In other words, give this strong consideration. Don't just look at it. Don't glance at it. Cast your eyes on it with purposefulness. If I could give you a word picture, it would be, you need to grab hold to what you're looking at. Behold. Behold that. Don't let that go. Because there are times that you and I might glance or look at the things of God and move along. And there are times that he says, no, 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 no. Settle right here for a moment and behold this. With conscious effort, look intently at what God is purposing. Man, if we could slow the pace of life down, declutter life, and quieten life, we could live more beholding, and we would understand God's glory so much more. So he says, behold. Now, if you jump over behold... You're going to jump towards what Peter was doing. And that was, what can I do? What can I do for you, God? And really what God didn't, what God wanted was not for him to do anything. Just behold. If you'll behold and listen to my son's voice, Peter, I will bring a metamorphosis in you. I will bring about a transformation in you. My glory will come alive in you. And then your doing will come out of that. Can I just say I've missed a lot of what God's intention for Christianity has been. I've made Christianity many years in my life about doing. Christianity is not about doing Christianity is about being like Christ. Just settle in to His being. And you can't do that without beholding. Now, when we behold and we settle into His being, the doing will come. And it will be right and it will be good. But I just sort of 
jump along. And God doesn't want that. He wants me to pause. And I think he's calling out to us like he did Peter, saying, this is my son. Listen to him. If I could reframe that, the way I'm hearing that is, Peter, why are you talking? My son is talking. Listen to him. Now, the message of Peter, what he's going to proclaim in the days ahead, is going to be amazing. In fact, the first public message that Peter ever preaches, 3,000 people get saved from that one message. So the words that Peter is going to share is going to be powerful. But you don't get to that power without first beholding. And he needed to learn that. He needed to become those words. He needed those words to be alive in him before they could give life to anyone else. So God's arresting him. Peter, listen to him. I have a practice in my office on days of intense study. and there, There's some of those throughout the week. Uh, Thursday is typically one of those where it's, it's a study and be quiet before the Lord day. And my ministry assistant will often close the door and give some measure of protection from interruptions. Now, her instruction has been from the very beginning. If one of our folks is in need, you come get me. Uh, I want an open door policy with our people. Uh, but if it's a salesman or if it's one of the staff wanting to know where I went to lunch, hold them off for a while. You have those moments? In fact, I can hear people moving up and down the hallway sometimes. So I just have a little fan. I turn the fan on, and it creates a little bit of a, a louder ambient sound so that I don't hear the distinction of other sounds. That's just the way God made me. All right, so I get everything set. The door is closed. I'm, I'm opening my Bible. I'm in a spirit of prayer. I'm, I'm wanting to engage God and Him to speak to my heart, to know how I'm supposed to communicate uh, to myself and to you. And uh, if I'm not careful, uh, I've got a desk phone, and the desk phone will go off. Right now, we're changing over phone systems. They are forcing us out of an analog system and onto a digital system. I know we've been in, in the analog phase way too long. But to be honest, we all know the phone system and just didn't want to give it up. So I have two desk phones right now, two opportunities for it to go off. And sometimes it does. And Outlook runs constantly in the background of my computer. Every 10 minutes, it's pulling new emails. And every time it pulls a new email, it chimes to let me know, oh, you ought to look at this. There's a new email. But I'm trying to study. I'm trying to listen to God's voice. But there's a bring a new email that you ought to look at. And sometimes my phone, my cell phone will go off. And if I forgot to put it on mute, it'll ring. And if I haven't put it on mute, or even if I do, my watch will buzz to let me know, hey, somebody's trying to text you, or somebody's trying to call you. Have you ever been there and, and had that kind of distraction? Or, or you think, okay, I'll just take just 30 seconds, I'll send them a text real quick, it'll be done, just quickly get the word out there. And you send the text, and the text goes, you see that it's delivered, and then you get these little dots that are going like this at you. And they're like, no, 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 don't, don't you go back to that study yet, Randy. You just wait a minute because that person is typing. And they're just a typing. You can see it. It's waiting. And you're just holding, waiting. And then it goes away. I'm like, oh, I guess they quit. They decided not to send me a 
response back. And about the time I put the phone down, oh, they start back up again. <laughs> no, 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 just wait a minute, Randy. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And if it's not the phone, it's those blasted bubbles. You seen that? You just take a glance at what time it is on your phone, and there's bubbles with numbers on it. And they're demanding that you look. It's just part of who I am. I cannot have a number in a bubble. I don't know what God has done to my brain. I've got a friend, Ronnie Jones. Uh, I look at his phone, and he's got, honest to the Lord, 1,247 emails in that little bubble. I'm like, Ronnie, get rid of that stuff. I can't sleep tonight knowing that you've got that kind of number in that bubble. Get rid of it. And if it's not that, it's social media. you got to know what people are doing. They're sending you Snapchats and Instagram messages. It's just constant. I think the prince of the power of the air is moving in all the chaos and all the noise trying to keep us from beholding God's glory. What are you saying, Randy? It's all evil? No. But the evil one uses whatever tool he can to do his dastardly deeds. Life is just noisy. I'm reading a book right now that's pretty intriguing. It's by Jared Wilson. I'm almost finished with it. And one of the paragraphs stood out to me. I was actually on a flight coming back here. And I emailed it to myself to read it to you. It says this, what all this boils down to is this. We have fundamentally a worship problem. And so long as we are occupying our minds with little worldly things and puny worldly messages, we will shrink our capacity to behold the eternal glory of Jesus Christ which is the antidote to all that ails us. He's right. So I know there's a lot of truths that can come out of this passage, but I want to settle down to a couple of things. And you know them already, but let me bring them back to the surface. God is more easily heard in your prayer closet and God wants to be heard. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And Jesus, understanding that, said to us, I'm your good shepherd. You're my sheep. You will hear my voice. So many of us are having a hard time hearing his voice. So many have not heard his voice in a long time, even though he said we will. And could it be that there is so much noise in our life, so much distraction in our life, that you cannot hear His speaking to you? So in the places of our prayer closet, be it at the kitchen table or literally in the closet, we don't engage with outside communication. We engage God. 
tomorrow morning, Kay and I will get up and we will prepare for her dad's funeral. And I'll have the privilege to preach that. And I'll preside over his body being lowered into the ground. But before any of that, we will be at our kitchen table and we will have the Bible opened and we will read it together and we will hear the voice of God. And what he says to us, we will write down and then we will put the Bible down and we will hold hands and we will pray over what God just said to us. May I encourage you that if that is not your practice, that today will be the first day to begin it. Listen to him, God said. Listen to him. And the second thing, you already know it, behold him. Behold him. Don't just look. If you're coming on Sunday morning and you're listening to me and you'll come back next week but haven't engaged him throughout the rest of the week, you're just glancing. You're missing so much that God wants to reveal to you. Behold him. Slow it down when you're reading the scripture. Okay, I give you a chapter a day in the reading plan. Sometimes two, three chapters a day if they're small. You go at whatever pace in the reading plan that you need to to behold him. If it takes you an hour to go through five verses, then behold him in those five verses. If you can go through the whole chapter in the 20 minutes and still behold him, then go through the whole chapter in 20 minutes. But at the end, behold him. You know what I often do is when I've read and I've journaled and written things down, I circle back through, okay, what do I see of God in this section? And the last thoughts that I have is how God has revealed himself in that passage, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And that is to behold him. I wish I could tell you I've done that my whole Christian life. I haven't. But behold him, and in doing so, you will become like him. And the Spirit of God will bring a metamorphosis in you that people would say, wow, you're changing. And out of the way he's changing you, you'll do life. Oh, I pray that that would bring great glory to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How about let's pray about that? Father, first, thank you for the great redemptive plan that was put in place before the foundation of the world was ordered. Thank you for Jesus. Perfectly God, perfectly man. Manifest on that day in a transfigured way. Thank you for revealing who he is in such a visual way and what he alone can accomplish in such a merciful, gracious, loving way through that cross. And thank you for the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding to that gospel good news. And thank you for working your salvation in those in this room who have received you by faith and for the work of salvation that you're doing for those who you're calling. We pray that what you have begun, you will complete. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.